As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Dominic here. This week, I released an interview with Professor Kara Cooney of University of California, Los Angeles. I released the interview in three separate episodes because our conversation moved around three distinct areas. However, if you would like the full discussion in one go, here it is. Enjoy. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is an interview episode in which I speak to Professor Kara Cooney. Kara, or Kathleen Cooney, is a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. She is also the chair of the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at UCLA, and is active in both the academic and public archaeological communities. Professor Cooney specializes in several historical fields. Most notably, she investigates funerary practices in ancient Egyptian society. Under this umbrella, she examines funerary crafts and craftworking, tomb building and tomb robbery, reuse of sacred spaces, artistic trends, reception history, and patterns of change in ancient tastes. Kara also studies socio-economic systems and the structure of ancient Egyptian society. This is a small drop in the bucket of her work, but it is a major part of her academic research. Kara Cooney also works in the public field and is a well-known figure in television documentaries. She has published two trade books, one about Hatshepsut, called The Woman Who Would Be King, and one about Egyptian royal ladies, called When Women Ruled the World. Both books are available now, and you will find a link to Kara Cooney's website where you can purchase them. Both books are available now from Professor Cooney's website, link in the episode description. I sat down with Professor Cooney to discuss a few different things in Egypt's new kingdom history. Firstly, we discussed funerary crafts and practices, and we answered that age-old question, how much did an ancient Egyptian funeral cost? Then, we moved into the reign of Hatshepsut, and the impact which that queen-king had on the 18th dynasty royal house. Finally, we dove into questions of ancient Egyptian monarchy, its relationship to organised crime, and the nature of pharaonic power. Also, we discussed Egyptology as a science, its presence in public and media representation, and Kara Cooney's career and future projects. We also asked, if Kara could answer one question from ancient Egypt, what would it be? That's enough from me. On with the interview. Thank you for joining me, and allow me to introduce Professor Kara Cooney. Part 1. Introduction. 
All right. So good morning, uh, Professor Cooney. Thank you very much for joining us on the History of Egypt podcast and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are things in Los Angeles? Are you doing all right? Uh, yeah, everything's great. It's um, beautiful and sunny outside of my office window and we are all uh, safer at home, our governor and mayor tells us, and I am teaching all of my classes via Zoom. And mm. for the graduate class, that's been a joy because I'm doing a Dero Medina seminar and we have Dr. Cedric Gobey taking part every week. And mm. so whenever you have a question about Dero Medina, to have the lead archaeologist of the site of Dero Medina on the phone, on the Zoom call, it's um, it's amazing. So. For the grad seminar, it's great. For the undergrad seminar of 200, (laughs) it's a little more unwieldy, but we we make it work. And I emote to a tiny camera in my computer, as so many of the computers are doing all around the world. (laughs) That's exciting. That's that's a very good uh, approach. That's a very cool approach. I like that. That's great. So, uh, Professor Cooney, Kara, supposing you were at a cocktail party, someone asked you about your work, you know, that dreaded question. What would be your elevator pitch of the material that you specifically research and the questions you investigate? Well, I'd have to pause and tell them that there are two of me, that I'm a bit schizophrenic as a educator, academic communicator, and that I have two streams of research. One that I write under the name of Kathleen M. Cooney, that is um, highly data-based and uh, text-based and social history examinations. And that would be my work on coffin reuse, my work on craftsmanship, apprenticeship, um, mm-hmm. more art historical work. And then the other persona, the other side of me, I write under the name Kara Cooney, which is what everyone calls me, what my mother calls me, um, even mm-hmm. though my birth certificate has Kathleen on it. And there, that's where I put my more um, risky, <laughs> um, non-academic necessarily, though all grounded in academic work, um, uh, pieces. And so that would be my trade books, like The Woman Who Would Be King and mm-hmm. uh, When Women Ruled the World. But I think everything shares all of my work. So going back to your question, right? Mm-hmm. Going back to your question of the elevator pitch of what my work is about. I think a lot of my work starts with from an intuitive space, from um, working with the limited data that we have, but trying to create uh, as full a picture as we can in the most responsible way, but not getting bogged down in the weeds and not um, arguing with colleagues over names and dates and facts, Mm. but more coming up above those weeds and asking why we should care at all and what it says about us and trying to find more of an interchange of communication between the past and the present. And Mm. That's where I tend to go the most. Okay. So perhaps broadly, would you say that you the the root interest or the root questions you investigate are questions of humanity, human behavior, and depending on the context, you express them in perhaps two different languages and personalities? I can almost sum it up in one word, how I like to approach humanity, and that is in terms of systems. Hmm. Not a very sexy word, systems. But instead, oh, it's on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, a student asked me today in the discussion for that big two hundred person class. Well, was Ramses the second just insecure, and that's why he built so many statues? And I'm like, no, you don't. That's not the way. I, he may have been. It's possible. Mm-hmm. He may not have been. He may mm-hmm. have been um, 
completely non-insecure, I, I, you know, confident in every which way. But there's this mm -hmm. question to ask, and it's not a useful way of looking at society. I like to look at social systems. Mm -hmm. So it's more useful to then ask, what kind of a social system would demand or allow that Ramses II place so many colossal statues all around Egypt in the places, that, in the temple context that he did? And mm -hmm. when you ask that, then you start to approach a picture of Ramses II that's not based on our description of the temple of Abu Simbel and he's the first one to divinize himself and what does that even mean? And we go through all of the mm -hmm. you know, discussions and the, the tomb of his sons and which son became king and blah, 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 how many years in the said festivals. And you can <laughs> do all of that. You can do it and we should do it. But isn't it more interesting to then ask, well, it's not that he's insecure, but these statues get him something and from whom and why does he need to communicate with more people than, than the kings before him than the 18th dynasty kings communicated with why why does he need to com communicate with a broader society and what does that mean and then you start to approach an understanding of the ramesid period as one of royal populism which i had never thought about until i started um working on ramses ii for an article I'm doing um, and 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 teaching this class, and now I'm thinking, huh? If you look at it in that way, it's not about Ramses and how he feels or insecure or confident. It's about the social system that he is trying to key into, and then yeah. it becomes populism and how he tries to sow division within society and pit one part against another. How he tries to create an elite replacement and work towards the the social mobility of the military and reward them while taking down. Yeah other people. Um, and, and then it becomes a much more interesting question for me, um, mm. rather than the way these things have, have been foc focused upon. So then everything can be answered with systems. I teach mm. another class on women in power in the ancient world at UCLA. And, you know, you'll always hit the part, and it's not just Egypt. I do Greece, Mesopotamia, China, the Levant, um, uh, Persia, and um, Rome. And mm. And when we're in the China part and you're talking about female, oh, in India too, you, India or China, you know, have these ideas of infanticide of the female. And it, hmm. you know, people aren't doing this, I tell my students, because, you know, they're evil people who just like boys. When you look at why people do things like that, you, you want to approach it from the system. And if the system is so patriarchal that economic... Uh, safety is only afforded through having many sons, then you will do as a family anything that you need to create that that less anxious, that more risk-averse place for you and your family, even if that means killing a daughter again and again mm -hmm. and having even an, uh, an entire population that's imbalanced towards sons. And so I just think now, and as I get older in my scholarship, I'm much more about the big picture, the long durée, the systems than I am about the individuals. Now, that's not to say that I'm not super interested in biography at the same time. I love mm -hmm. learning about people's lives and all of the trials and tribulations that they had. But the way that I focus on an individual's life is through their system. And thus, I think I'm, I, I get different things out of it than traditional Egyptology might. Part 2. The Socio-Economics of Death in Ancient Egypt Having got our introductory conversation out of the way, we now move into the meat of the discussion. And we start with that age-old question. 
How much did an ancient Egyptian funeral, specifically a coffin, actually cost? So narrowing the focus very slightly from that, you've, you've researched many aspects of Egyptian social history, uh, particularly relating to craftworking and funerary culture in the New Kingdom. Hypothetically, for an, for an ancient person living in the social system of, say, Thebes during the late New Kingdom, someone looking ahead to the, the end of their life, their eventual burial, along some, on some basic informational lines, how much, say, would a decent quality painted coffin cost an individual? And how long might these things take to prepare? Yeah, a coffin can range in price. Your average coffin is going to cost about 30 deben, each deben equal to about 91 grams of copper. And hmm. that means nothing to us. We don't bring copper to the market. We don't even bring coins to the market anymore. So that can be compared to um, 30 Deben could be compared to um, a young cow. It could be compared mm. to five shirts, um, hand-woven mm. shirts, of course. We don't get to go to the shop and buy these things. People are hand-weaving mm. in their homes. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, five shirts, given how much time it must have taken to weave the linen for each of those shirts, that's and that's the average price. And you can certainly go up from there to a coffin that costs 200 um, Debon for just the one coffin. I'm not including the entire set. And mm. so the the coffin price itself makes you understand that very few people could afford these things. And it's funny, mm. I work on price and value and social hierarchies. But as a dissertation writing grad student, it, it came as a shock to me to think that most ancient Egyptians wouldn't have had access to a coffin. And mm. um that it really it's 5% or less. And those lower elites at the lower uh, stratum of that 5% could afford a coffin that was quite awful to behold. And there are a few of those left in, in museums around the world or that show up on excavation sites. And when you see coffins that are um, so ugly <laughs> and of such low quality wood and painting and everything, it fills me with great joy because then I can see people in the lower part of society, elite society, trying to emulate what's higher up. And then mm. I think about all of the people, the 95% of people who couldn't participate at all, who had a different, must have had a different way of reifying their death anxieties. They couldn't use mm. the coffin to contain the deceased and transform them into Osiris or Ray, not in that way. They had palm rig matting, they had other things. They would often bury the dead in a fetal position, not laid out, um, even though all of the rich were laid out. And this would happen in the New Kingdom and third intermediate period and beyond. To think of all that we've missed, all of the mm. funerary culture and the ways of burying the dead that we can only see in um, newly dug sites because those um, because so the excavators of the last hundred years have ignored so much of that material, unless it's very old, like the pre-dynastic, um, mm. lost a lot to think of what we have lost is, um, it, it can be rather, um, difficult for the archeologist, but it's, it's amazing to me how often we tell the story of the Egyptian preparation for burial uncritically through the lens of the rich without any understanding mm. of what we're doing. And then I think, oh my goodness, look at society today and how often we uncritically tell a story 
through the lens of the haves versus the have nots. And that is the way things run. And um, so the, yes, the, the, I always look at um, even funerary culture and preparation for it through uh, a social history lens. So I'm in many ways more interested in the living than I am in the dead. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So speaking of the living, how how did people's attitudes towards the dead, towards burials, and to the the accessories that went along with that for uh, poor and for non-poor, how did these sort of things change over the new kingdom? Did practices or fashions shift? And what evidence do we have for this? There's huge shifts, and it's uh, it's there before our eyes in all of the excavations in a way that's so clear um, when you take the long durée approach, when you take a deep time approach, um, it's not even deep time. It's just a, a long duration of time, a good 300 years as you go from 7th, 17th dynasty burials in Thebes to early 22nd or 23rd or 24th dynasty burials in Thebes. Um, know what I'm saying in Thebes because the preservation of this wood and of all of this material is largely a Southern phenomenon. There are mm -hmm. some coffins preserved from Telalamarna or from Saqqara, or from some Delta places, but not like they are in Thebes and not with the mm. consolidated um, material quality that they are in Thebes. Mm -hmm. And so it's this is very much a Southern Egyptian question. Um, mm -hmm. So using that Theban material, you can see one, that society broadens through time, that more people can participate towards the third intermediate period and then can participate on the 17th dynasty end. So there is a broadening of society, which is very interesting in and of itself. More people are there as decision makers, movers and shakers in, in the Theban society. Um, more people are getting paid a wage and, and have something to say. Um, mm. Then the other thing, the other trend that you see is of display. Display stays constant throughout. Families want to put their best foot forward. They want to show what they're able to produce, wealthy families. And mm. that never stops. Even when people can't get access to wood to make a coffin in the 21st dynasty or starting in the mid-20th dynasty, they will reuse the coffin of their ancestors from a family crypt that they own legally, bring it to the craftsman and have it updated because that mm -hmm. need for display is so important. So even when there is an economic downturn, social competition and display drives a continuous production of coffins. It does not ever stop, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of human-induced climate change and people saying, you know, we should really use uh, fossil fuels yet less. And despite all of that, because of the system we have in place, because of how many people benefit from it, even though we know long-term we're walking towards a cliff or running, mm -hmm. um, we continue mm -hmm. Because of how much we get in in the here and now, people don't like to change, and they only change mm. when they absolutely have to change. There's no other recourse. They so often find another way. And then mm. the third trend I would notice, and there are many other trends, but the third big trend is one of conspicuous consumption of commodities that anyone would want to use towards a trend of conspicuous consumption of commodities in a more defensive manner. What I mean by that is in dynasties 17 and 18, and mainly 18 when you have the money 
to do this. People, yeah. rich people, are burying themselves with all kinds of things like shirts and sheets and blankets and beds and tables and chairs and wigs and unguents and makeup. And that's in addition to the coffins and the canopic jars and all of that paraphernalia for death with the coffin yep. at the center. So all of this stuff. And then as the, the new kingdom starts to go down this downward spiral and things start to fail and tombs are open and these commodities are pulled out, the Egyptian Thebans, and it must have been happening in Saqqara and other places in the world, start to think about their burials in a much more defensive fashion. And they, they then resist the urge for the conspicuous consumption of stuff that others would love to have and towards the conspicuous consumption of stuff that is problematic to take, problematic to reuse. If you go into someone's tomb and you don't touch their coffin, but you take all this nice big stack of woven linen sheets, then you're like, mm. well, they don't need the sheets. I can tell the dead people aren't using it. Whatever, those silly people, I'm taking the sheets. And the dead person, mm. like, sorry, dead person, all good, we're fine. But in the, as... Um, Time goes on, so people are like, fine, I'm not going to bury myself with sheets. I'm just going to bury myself with the coffin, with the, the nested coffin set, with the canopic jars, with all of the, the things that you need for death, and I am dispensing with all of that daily life material. You actually see it in tomb depictions at the same time, interestingly. You see in the tomb chapel, above which all of this stuff is buried in an 18th dynasty tomb, images of weeping, images of potting, images of metallurgy, all of these things. People want to consume mm. that and display that. By the time you get to the Ramesid period, 19th and 20th dynasties, people are like, no, we're not doing that anymore. It's not helpful. And everyone's taken my stuff or because I'm the one that took it. So then they start to defensively think, I am going to focus on the commodities that are harder to take. And so in the 19th dynasty, they're tricking out their coffins, they're gilding their coffins. Mummification mm -hmm. is arguably better in dynasty 19. And you have an explosion of different kinds of objects that are much more religiously purposed. And so mm -hmm. when the crisis really hits in dynasty 20, mid dynasty 20, but it could have hit earlier for, for many people, and people are like, oh, my God, we need the wood to bury grandma, you know, otherwise she's not going to be transformed. And what do we do? What will people think? Um, then they'll, they'll even reuse those religiously functional commodities and go for the coffins, go for um, canopic jars, reuse things that, that that had a kind of force field around them, a social force field, because people don't want to reuse something that was meant for the dead that may have have the detritus of, of the dead body on it. And so mm -hmm. they they pull away from that. By the time the crisis gets really bad in Dynasty 21, this is just normal. It's so normal to reuse a coffin that in some coffins, there's one coffin in the Vatican and another coffin in the Met that probably are a mother-daughter reuse. Um, hmm. The mother had the coffin and the daughter keeps the mother's name on there and, and then hmm. put her name over the varnish. You can prove it in the Met because there's a papyrus in association with it that names them both and they're related <laughs> to each other. The coffin in the Vatican only has two strange Libyan names that helps me to circumstantially suspect that these women were related to each other and the retention of one name was not scribal error. These are people doing something purposefully. So the the trends are 
are there for how people deal with burial, but isn't it great? It's not just burial. It's everything. It is the way people, rich people had themselves buried, but it is reflective of so much more within Egyptian society, what the economic health of the place was, how many people were uh, integrated into government systems, how people displayed to make their mark in um, a particular time and place. And the only thing that is constant within that changing um, data set is the need for the rich people to display. And it's something that still hasn't changed in many ways. We need to see and touch the dead as they go into the ground. And as we're here in this coronavirus pandemic and so many people are losing family members and they are buried without anyone being there or cremated mm -hmm. without anyone having said goodbye. These are things that we find very um, problematic, we human beings. But we do like to put on a good show and display and show how important our family members are. And mm -hmm. that, so that even the Quran, when it says, um, probably in reaction to many of these polytheistic traditions of using death ceremonies to, to put a family up on a pedestal, even in the Quran, when it says, you know, you should, the, everyone rich and poor is buried simply three days right into the earth. No, nothing else. Then you'll go to Cairo or you'll go to, you'll go to Istanbul or you'll go anywhere where Islam is, has been practiced for centuries. And you'll see these grand burials and you think, well, mm. this is a cheat. And it is a cheat. The person <laughs> is still put into the ground directly into the earth. So they did it, but it's mm. got all this marble and beautiful stuff all around it. And, mm. um, yeah, so we, we don't like to give up these these methods of display. We find the loopholes in the system. Always do. <laughs> you have to be in the ground in three days, but there's nothing of nothing <laughs> that stops you from building a mausoleum three years ahead. Yeah. yeah. Mm. My conversation with Kara continues in a moment. First, it's time for a quick break. See you soon. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? <laughs> I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Part 3. Having discussed the overall context of funerary culture in the New Kingdom, we now move into some details about Egyptian craftsmanship. Specifically, how did an Egyptian coffin maker learn their trade? So, <clears throat> looking at the, the actual production 
of these objects. You know, for every for every coffin, there is a maker, someone who has to carve and decorate and produce this thing. Artisans obviously didn't appear fully formed and skilled out of nothing. They went through apprentice apprenticeships with many stages of learning, and this is something that you you have also researched. What evidence do we have for ancient Egyptian apprentices specifically? Hardly any. Um, it's it's really tricky to study something like this. You're not going to find a school. You're not going to find even um, clearly marked father-son pairings. Mm. In terms of craftsmanship, there are two main places to really focus your study. And that is either Tel El Amarna or it is Diro Medina. And mm. those two places are invaluable um, uh, capsule cities. One, Dir Medina, a manufactured non-organic village in the desert that shouldn't exist and that water has to be brought to physically. Um, mm. Thus, that desert place, um, it, it caps it and, and uh, secures it for us to study. And Amarna, this manufactured city built from the ground up, 17, not, less than a, about a 10-year history, right? And then they abandon it and, and it's capped and, and sealed for us mm -hmm. to study. So using those two places, the documentation, even though there are tons of ostracists that talk about the prices of different commodities, um, the, the crew at Dero Medina, uh, an ostracon, by the way, is a, is a limestone flake or a postured flake with um, text or image on it. And these ostraca tell us all kinds of things about craftsmanship, about how much things cost, about who's doing work, who the work is for, whether the work is state employment or private sector employment, arguably, though that's a tricky question. But mm. nowhere do you see uh, anybody talking about training their son in, in their profession. You do see genealogically that sons can often follow fathers and you can follow the genealogy at Dero Medina and see how people are moving into the crew to, to build and decorate these tombs in the Valley of the Kings and Valley of the Queens. But how much mm -hmm. this was a question of status and payoffs versus skill level is very debatable. So mm -hmm. you're left with, with all kinds of weird circumstantial arguments that you have to try to make from what's left behind. And I'll give you two little things that I have used to try to understand apprenticeship, two pieces of data. One is the coffin of Sinejim, today in the Cairo Museum, found in Theban tomb one, uh, the only intact Ramesid tomb uh, from, from Egypt, Theban, of course. And that, that coffin of Sinejim has beautiful decoration on one side with the text in blue ink, and then on the other side, on the coffin uh, case side, that blue is inexpertly applied to the coffin. It's almost like the apprentice did it, somebody who didn't know what they were doing. And the, the hieroglyphs just look really messy and it doesn't look very nice. And you can look at that coffin and you can just circumstantially guess this is a, a master and apprentice situation. And they actually let the apprentice keep his hand, his inexpert hand of lower value on the mm. coffin and that everyone saw that displayed and that that was okay. That in some cases that inexpert hand could, was allowed to be um, uh, kept on a given piece. You don't see it very often. And you wonder if it, was, if it was a conscious choice because most other coffins that we have preserved have a more um, 
uh, a higher quality hand and a more rigorous eye to consistency on a piece. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's interesting that that was, that that stood maybe because they're craftsmen, this Sinejim family, a family of craftsmen, maybe they allowed uh, one of the apprentices in their family allowed his hand to stay on that coffin. It's completely possible that the father's like, no, I want it. I love it. It stays. Who knows? We have no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, That's an interesting point. And so you can see it, but you don't know the details. Um, And then there's uh, some of the work that I've done on figural ostraca. These these limestone flakes and potsherds that have figures on them rather than text or figures in addition to text. And they can be anything. They can be sketches of a monkey climbing a tree or a pharaoh's profile or some it can be something a little more formal, a sketch of of, of a kind of stela of somebody worshiping a god or goddess with names attached to it. Um and these figured ostraca, you know, we Egyptologists, we Westerners, uh, most of us, have tried to find a, a use, a common use for these figured ostracans to say, oh, these pieces are trial pieces for a tomb. And people have looked and they're like, no, that doesn't really work. What's, what you see mm-hmm. in the Valley of the Kings is very different from what's depicted on these figural ostraca or what you see depicted in the tomb chapels or burial chambers that are painted of Daryl Medina workmen, also very different. So there's not an mm. overlap. It's not a trial piece. It doesn't really work. And then some mm. of these sketches are very unusual, a dancing woman. Um, mm. Some of them are masterful and extraordinary, and some of them are really ugly. And so <laughs> you you get an idea of how this works. And instead of calling it a, an apprenticeship system, I, I like to call it a community of practice which is not something that I've come up with. This is a, a system developed by Lave and Wenger, I think are the, the uh, anthropologists or cognitive scientists who have developed this idea that if you have a community and there's a shared practice in that community, then everyone is in this community of practice and they're all competing and cooperating and working with each other and showing off and hiding and doing all of the things mm-hmm. that you would do in a community of practice. And so while... It's easy for us to think of a da Vinci workshop, master, apprentice kind of system, because that's what we have in our Western brains. When you look at the way people actually teach people how to do something, how a mother might teach her daughters to bake bread, it's always her daughters, right? Um, Whatever we want it to be. Maybe there are young sons around, but maybe he's being apprenticed in a different way. But when she's doing that, the grandmother's there, maybe the aunt's there. It is a community of practice that that girl is brought into for something Mm. bread, 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 baking that demands a tremendous amount of skill. I can't break baked bread at all. It's a disaster. And I'm not even trying despite coronavirus. But, um, <laughs> but you know, you, you have this constant practice going on that is training you. And I think very much the same thing was going on at Daryl Medina, but not in the way we expect, not where you sit children down again during this coronavirus pandemic and you see what homeschooling is and what the teachers give you and another worksheet, another worksheet, I have a 10 year old and God's help us. Um, (laughs) This kind of rote repetition, this way we think of it that is proper learning. Mm -hmm. Um, There are many ways of learning how to do something and just including your child in your life and having that child be a part of your actual work. Um, mm. It would probably be better for most of the kids who are at home right now than what we're at, than all those mm. worksheets we're making them do. But we can't let go of that idea that that's what real education is. But these mm. ostrica, these figured ostrica, give a bit of an idea that 
everyone was constantly practicing. Everyone was constantly messing with their figures. Everyone was showing off. Some of them had amazing hands. The master is painting. Some of them are just like, oh my goodness, what is that? And it's some kid who's showing what he can do. And he's got his hands on an ostracon. And everyone's like, ha ha, cute. And then he throws it down. Running up and like, mummy, mummy, look what I drew. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe. Yeah. Um, or maybe they're all up in the huts over by the Valley of the Kings and everyone's hanging out overnight. They're not going to go back. Guards don't want to let them go mm. back, something. So they're all just sketching and laughing. And there's a pornographic one. And there's a, mm. you know, one of the monkey climbing the trees because they miss the trees and they live out in the desert. But I mm. see it in a much more freeform way, much more mm. organic, much more messy than than we liked to see. And I think that's mm. one of the reasons we haven't identified schools because the schools don't exist in the way that we think they do. They're everywhere and everyone's doing it. So I have a long answer to your question. Model, aren't we? Yeah. Yep. That's interesting. And off off the record, um, that community of practice thing, did you say it was Lave and Winger? Mm-hmm. Lave and Winger. That sounds fascinating because my my PhD research is on socioeconomics of Dynasty 18, so I need to find that. That's a very interesting idea. Thank you. It um, is you yeah. My graduates don't happen to have the reference to you. I do, and I have it somewhere in this office. Um, and I'll make sure that where is it? Or is it at work? Um, I'll send it to you though. I'll be. Oh, there it is. Here it is. I knew to look for the yellow. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Is it backwards or can you see it? Situated learning. Okay. Just hopefully my library has that. But situated learning. I'll just take a quick screenshot of that actually. That's useful. That's that's an excellent little thing. Thank you very much. A lot of my grad students find this extraordinarily useful and it can work for anything. So if you're talking hmm. I, I have um one graduate student finishing right now, Danny Candelora, who's working on military communities of practice. And then you have different military communities of practice coming into contact with one another, like 11 team chariot based, um, more competitive uh, community of military practice coming into contact with an infantry based, um, non chariot, less competitive, more draft labor kind of community of practice. And when those two come together, you get some very interesting um, results. Yeah, okay. That's, that's interesting, because yes, we're very in the West, at least today, we are very stuck in a Victorian model of education. But yes, as you're right, you know, in the basic structures of human society, this is a very good way to teach your children is just have them watch, have them test it alongside you or do it. Even if it's just keep, keep them busy and stop them nagging you. Yeah, there's less beating, there's less cajoling, there's less um, of a demand that they do something that they don't want to do. Those kids want to be with you and do something with you. And um it's it's interesting to see how um, I think we have so much of this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. This brings us to the end of the conversation about funerary culture. Coming up, Kara Cooney and I turn to the topic of Hatshepsut, the queen who became a king early in the 18th dynasty and whose period of rule had a long-lasting impact on the royal household of Egypt and the nature of pharaonic power. That is in a moment. See you soon.
Part 4. In 2014, Kara Cooney published The Woman Who Would Be King, a biography of the pharaoh Hatshepsut. Naturally, I did not want to miss the opportunity to ask Kara her thoughts on Hatshepsut and the impact she had on the royal household of Dynasty 18. So, moving away now from the uh, 19th to 22nd dynasties, I'd like to talk about Hatshepsut specifically. Mm -hmm. So, in 2014, you published The Woman Who Would Be King, which was a popular biography of Hatshepsut and her times. At the very basic level, what inspired you to write a narrative history of that ruler in particular? I didn't want to write a narrative history of that ruler in particular. I didn't want to at all. Um, okay, I'll delete the question. No, no, no. It's um, no, no, no. It's uh, but it's funny, isn't it? How um, and then, well, I didn't until I did. So when mm. Hatshepsut keeps finding me, she keeps sneaking up behind me tapping me on the, just pestering me like you've got to tell my story you've got to do this i am not looking for hot chefs but she is certainly looking for me and i know this because in 2005 when i found myself between jobs i was approached by a producer to do a discovery channel television show on hot chefs yeah. i'm like well i don't really know anything it's not my period you know i do 19th and 20th but I suppose, you know, I could get a free trip to Egypt and do this thing on Hatshepsut. It sounds like it could be fun. And so yeah. I did this thing and it ended up being still to this day, one of Discovery Channel's most popular shows, not because of me, but because of Zahi and the tooth and they identified the, mon- identified the mummy and all of these things. But mm. it made me think about what we know about Hatshepsut and what we don't know about Hatshepsut in a very interesting way. And because of that television show, I was then somehow colored as a Hatshepsut expert, which is rather laughable. And for any academic who knows how mm. academics work and how we put ourselves in these little boxes, um, even more laughable. And so when a lit agent approached me and he said, why don't you write a book about Hatshepsut? I immediately, without a beat, said, I can't write a book about Hatshepsut. And he said, why ever not? And I said, "Well." she's 18th dynasty and I do the 19th and 20th. And he, mm. he's like, really Kara, wouldn't you want to write a book about female power? And then he had me, then I was mm. like, oh, okay, female power. And I didn't think about it then in 2000. And when did this book come out? 2008? No, no, 2000. I don't even know. 11. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. 12, 2012. Um, This book comes out in 2012. I don't think I understood that I thought in terms of systems at that time. I was just intuitively doing it. And so approaching that book from my systematic or systemic approach was uh, very useful because then I, I took this woman and I wrote a biography from cradle to grave and beyond. And I tried to make it as personal as I possibly could, as much about her decision-making within her world as I possibly could, which no one tried to do and is not an easy thing to do, um, with as much hypothetical um, uh, construction of my own, but based on systems. What is this military system? What is this political system? Who are the actors in it? What are the most likely reactions of people in that in that kind of situation? How are people most likely to respond to this or that? And I ended up creating a much more compelling narrative than I thought I could and a much more personal narrative than I thought I could. 
And that book for me is very much about individuals being stuck in a system. What is the power of the individual to change a system, to recognize a system, to see the pieces on a board and then to move them at their will? Most of us are cogs in a machine. Most of us can work very little upon the system in which we are, were born, in which we find ourselves, and we have a hard time transcending beyond that. And there are a few people who can truly work upon the system, but they are still a product of that system. And so the Hatshepsut mm. book really helped me to, to see so many of the fallacies we have about this woman. She took power. She grasped power. That's crazy. Mm. No one does. No one, not even Alexander the Great, not Hitler, not Trump. No, nobody is able to just go in and take power. You must have a foundation for that power. Mm. You must have people who want you to do that. You must have lieutenants and protectors. And so mm. when I started to see it in that way, it completely changed the narrative from, from a narrative of female power that we adulate and say, look, women could do it to a more cynical view. And I think a more, uh, I don't know, fourth wave feminist view that that women are used as placeholders and used um, as leaders. And I could put Maggie Thatcher and Theresa May into these categories, but but they're all there to serve a patriarchal system that is not moving their own individual female suits forward. And hot chef is mm. the same. And so... So it's a tragedy. That book's a tragedy. When Women Rule the World is also a tragedy. It is, it is about uh, females working on behalf of a system that serves them individually, but does not serve their sisterhood. And it explained to me through the lens of history, why there is no sisterhood, why we don't um, link ourselves together, um, why we don't have a word for a woman who acts against the sisterhood. There's all kinds of words for an African American who acts against his black people, but there's no word for a woman who screws over other women because she wants to get cute shoes from that guy. There's no word for that. And that's because mm. there's no sisterhood. And if there's no sisterhood, that means the patriarchy truly is that strong. And I now see that world around me more clearly around me now mm. because of mm-hmm. episode. So I don't know if she's haunting me or what, but <laughs> But she's there constantly trying to get me to tell her stories. It's the third time I've I've written about her or talked about her once the television show, then the biography. And then she comes back in When Women Ruled the World, of course. And uh, Mm. the story keeps developing in my mind. Hmm. Naturally, that makes sense. So as as a ruler, as a woman, as a product of her system and a person with some power to impact that system in various ways. What kinds of changes did the period of Hatshepsut's rule, however much you attribute it to her and however much you attribute it to the structure in which she moves, what kinds of changes did Hatshepsut effect or prompt in the economic and social structure of Egypt's royal household? This is a big question. I'm going to try to hit this from two different points. Um, number one, I'm going to hit it in terms of royal justification. How is the king Mm. chosen? Um, how does a king justify their power? And number two, I will hit it in terms of social foundations. Let's start with Mm. the latter. So you can see it in any museum you go to. 
you can see it on the ground in Egypt, that as soon as Hatshepsut takes power, there is an explosion of production in private things of display. Tombs, statues, better coffins, it's there. It's very mm -hmm. clear that she was a jobs creator, that the, the co-reign of Hatshepsut and Tumas III was a time period of wealth and expansion, mm -hmm. um, economic expansion, military expansion, but it was also a time period in which Hatshepsut has to give to get. So you could look at it and say, oh, Egypt is so wealthy and look at all of this. Um, isn't this wonderful? Or you could say, huh, isn't it interesting in the early 18th dynasty, this kind of display is, is um, consistently kept only to a very few families. And yeah. it, it's kept inside the, the royal household. As the 18th dynasty progresses, and particularly during the reign of when Hatshepsut takes over, as coping. Then everyone's got a nice tomb. And then he has a nice tomb. You've got nice tombs amongst like um, Ahmose, son of Abana, which now is being proven to be mostly decorated during that time period rather than earlier. Um, all of those tombs of El Cobb seem to be decorated at the time period of Hatshepsut and Thomas III, even though they're hearkening back to a 17th, 18th dynasty reality. Um, so, and that's um, uh, Davies. Um, who's who's proven that? Um, Vivian Davies. Vivian Davies, yes. And um, and I and I, I have to think of the reference for that. Mm, I need but, to I need to read that. Yeah, it's, I need some episodes to rewrite. Super interesting, right? Um, yeah. that, that he's able to prove that what you think is is a paheri is not something that he did himself during his own time, but something his um, uh, ancestor um, pre, um, the the is it ancestors? Descendants. descendants. Oh my God, thank you. That his descendants did after him. Um, and and gaining their own connection to that uh, patriarchal paterfamilias and, and that mm -hmm. play thereby. So it seems awesome on the face of it, but on the, but when you look at it through this lens, you see that the kingship has been forever weakened, that she has to get, mm -hmm. to get that she has to reward to keep her power. And that she, mm -hmm. beginning, and I set this up in the book, was probably a pawn, a pawn of all of these elites who want to keep their money and actually want to use this time period of the king's vulnerability to grab more and to see what they can take. And they take this young girl, maybe 14, maybe 15, maybe 18, maybe 22. What did you know at 22? <laughs> and a woman, right? So they put her in there and it, however old she was. And all these elites are just taking, taking, taking. And there is more job creation during this time period, more titles being created, more professionalization, whatever you want to call it, during this time period than at any other. And it is, um, according to some, like David Warburton, who wrote a book about Hatshepsut about 10 years ago, I think, it is the forever weakening of the 18th dynasty kingship, economically, hmm. socially, from from this point on, the king has to please the people around him. And so then it takes something like Senenmut, and you you can throw all of the were they lovers stuff out of the window. It doesn't matter. She needs new men as well. As, when she gets older then, when she starts to realize that she's a pawn and now she's moving along in a different way, she starts to look at this situation of all of these patricians taking stuff. And she's like, damn, this is not cool. I need to fix this. 
So now she needs to, to put to pit elites against elites. And she starts to elevate new men with no old connections to any of this, these patricians and give them new jobs, give them the same title. A patrician has this title and Senemut has the title. And this happens mm -hmm. with new man after new man. And she knows that they have to trust her and she can trust them because they don't have anyone else to answer to. And she's able to move her suit forward and become a different kind of ruler in that way. So there is a pushback, but, um, but the amount of enrichment of the elites started in her reign and of course continued, this isn't going to go away. Um, I can't, mm. can't put that genie back in the bottle and say, okay, you guys have to go back to keeping it all in the palace and no one's going to do that. These, these are his lieutenants. Um, now, the second thing that I think changes with the reign of Hatshepsut is that because the kingship is so weakened and because she is a regent for what may have been a toddler king, if that child was produced within the reign of Tutmos II, maybe it, maybe it was a seven-year-old king, whatever, the kid was young, right? If, hmm. if the kingship is so weakened and you have a regent who seems to have been handpicked by elites because, you know, she works for them in a way to keep that status quo, then a new system, religious system is set up to justify that king. And even when Hatshepsut gets some of her own back and is able to create these new men to push back against those patricians, she still has to say, the only reason I'm doing this is because my father Amun-Re is asking me to do this. And so there is now a new oracular, prophetic, revelatory, connection between the god and the king's creation the king is mm. the one who knows that they have been chosen the king announces this to to his or her people and it is now um using ideological power in an irrevocable way to communicate to people you have to have me as your leader because the god said so now that mm. seems it could it's some people have published that as untruths as when Hatshepsut says these things though no one ever seems to say that when Thomas the Third says it. Um, so she's a liar. She's duplicitous. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it, when any king has to say that the God chose me, it means that somebody else out there is saying that they're not legitimate, that they shouldn't be king, that something's wrong, something's off. And remember, she's only the third ruler in her Thotmazid family. Moving, you know, if, whatever Amenhotep the first situation was, the reason he didn't have any children, if it's incest, I mean, he is the product of two full brother-sister marriages. It can't have been pretty. But whatever the, the reality of that situation, it was a move, a shift from one family lineage to another. And when hmm. Amenhotep the first moves in, it's it might have been an enfeebled kingship from the beginning. Like Amenem had the first of Dynasty 12 and he's assassinated. And then Senwasrit the first is constantly saying in, in a different way, you know, I'm here as your savior. I'm meant to be here. It's it's this justification of kingship. And for for Hatshepsut in particular, when she starts to claim this revelation of the God with an oracle, the God marks her for power in front of the elite's eyes. It means she has to. It smacks of, of real vulnerability that there is somebody to please, there is somebody to convince, and religion is the best way to do it. And Tutmos III follows suit with that. So if you read in his annals, his section, uh, the, the text de la jeunesse, as it is called, he is there saying that the God chose him as a nestling 
that all of the other boys were assembled and he, you know, the Oracle went to him and then he flew up into the heavens and knew things that you can't possibly imagine. These are things mm. that a king before that didn't need to tell you. He was king. And, and I don't need to convince you of anything. I don't need the God on my side. I am the God. Remember, I'm the God. <laughs> so mm. um, you can see the vulnerability there for Hatshepsut's kingship. Is it because she's a woman? Probably partly so. Is it because the king before her was so young and she's working for him? Probably partly so. But it seems that the elites have been truly energized and invigorated in their power vis-a-vis -vis the king. And so there is an attempt to use religion, but the long-term repercussions mm. of that are brutal. Um, mm. It creates Akhenaten and whatever that is, mm. and it will end up creating a empowerment of a military because Akhenaten can't get his military, his religious message reified in any other way. And he has to empower, but he has to empower a different elite. And then you see the pushback in which you have a, a military coup and a military kingship of, of ex-mercenaries with the Ramesses. So you can see it all working in a long-term scheme of things, of, of how the system morphs its way. It, with one, you know, one trick of fate, a king dies too early. That would be Tutmos II. A new dynasty is enfeebled. They, they do what they can, but the elites pounce. And then the dominoes fall and those dominoes keep falling. There's pushback along the way, but you end up then with, with uh, military populism by the time you get to Ramses II. And that's, that's pretty interesting. Part five, having discussed Hatshepsut's impact on the royal household of Egypt, we now move into the greater concept of Egyptian royal power and the relationship between a king, their courtiers, and the people of the country. So in some respects, perhaps the, the period of Thutmose II and then Hatshepsut and Thutmose III sort of exposes, at least for us looking back, some of the, the more negotiated elements of the Egyptian kingship, which, you know, probably were there as part of their society, but now are suddenly a lot more visible because other people are able to make their influence known in very in lasting ways things that turn up on monuments and are recorded we must never forget that we are dealing with as egyptologists a an authoritarian regime that is constantly trying to veil its realpolitik from us it is up to mm -hmm. us to try to find any traces of that realpolitik possible and not drink the divine kingship kool-aid most of us just drink the kool-aid and take the data at face value and think it is irresponsible to try to circumstantially understand or hypothetically understand what may have happened behind the scenes. In my mm. opinion, it is incumbent upon all Egyptologists or anybody who studies any authoritarian regime or any regime of power to try to understand what, why one thing is revealed at one time and not at another time. And one of the most mysterious things in all of the ancient Egyptian world is how a king was chosen. That's the way they want it, though. So we can talk about primogenitor, and some Egyptologists do. We can talk about oracles, and many Egyptologists do. But we actually have no idea how these backroom deals happened. Who was whispering to whom? Who was maybe assassinated or poisoned? Who was? We have no idea. But mm. there's some inkling of it, and it would it's upon us to try to 
see more into that world rather than mm. not. We almost ironically have a responsibility to actually treat them as humans. <laughs> yes. Well, so many people, that's why ancient aliens exist. That's why all of these TV shows about the ancient Egyptians exist, in my opinion, is mm. to separate them from us, to see the magic and the mysteries. And then they're not human at all anymore. And um, right. I remember the, I, when I wrote the book, The Woman Who Would Be King, I, I got a negative review from Christina Riggs in the Times Literary Supplement, which is, mm. okay, yeah, I get a negative review. Everyone gets negative reviews. That's fine. But there's one sure. thing there that, that speaks exactly to your question and that I have used as fuel ever since in this negative review. It's been very useful to me. So thank you, Christina Riggs, whether you meant to do this or not. But she called my book Universalist that mm. I was removing myself from the particularist world of the ancient Egyptians at my peril, that it wasn't my place mm. to do so, that I was being mm. universalist in doing so and the irresponsible, and that this was not the proper uh, thing that a historian should do. That essentially, I'm paraphrasing, one could find the, the review. But for me, I, you know, and you, it hurts it when you get these reviews or when you, but you think, and I, I don't mm -hmm. read reviews um, actually anymore, though maybe I should because this one has been so useful. But when I thought about it, I'm like, whoa. So I have to take the ancient Egyptians only at their word, only believe what they say. I can't compare them to us. It's like they're not humans. If I can't be mm -hmm. universalist, then I, I have no empathy for someone from Afghanistan because they wear a burqa and I wouldn't do that and or I don't have to. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I think it's a fallacy to think that the ancient world is so different from our world that we cannot compare it to today. I think that the ancient world is one of the best ways that we have of learning about what we live in today. And if we think that our knowledge of 250 years of American history, for example, is going to help us understand the future of America, that's ridiculous. You have to have a long durée perspective of a thousand years, at least 500 years. Um, we do it as Egyptologists. We should do it in in uh, the world we live in today. But but I really push back against people telling me that the ancient Egyptians were so different and that I can't do this. I shouldn't do this. Um, and it's actually it's really energized me to to keep going forward in what some people call popular work or trade work. I call it that myself. But the more that I do it, the more political it becomes, and the more it's my key focus and um my reason for writing right now it's that a it's that tendency of perhaps some of us to not only buy into the myths of that the ancients put forward about themselves but also to in some respects place ourselves on a pedestal you know how could we compare them to us because we are obviously so much better and more educated when when you really get down to it human behavior is very much consistent with what we see in the past well, and hasn't this pandemic exposed some real modern exceptionalism? We talk, I talk about mm. American exceptionalism all the time, and the United States is being mm. exposed as the uh, country built on chattel slavery and social inequality now mm. better than any other time in its history. And let it be shown to itself and to the world what it was built upon, because it's dirty down there, and it's time to rethink it. I think there are many other countries that could have the same conversation about what their foundations are. But modernist exceptionalism is just as dangerous because you think, oh, okay, there's climate change, but you know, we're different. We have these brains. We're not really part of the world. And then you realize that you're an animal 
like all the other animals and that some weird virus that was in another animal can now come to you because guess what? You're an animal and that even though you're all modern and cool, your systems suck because they're the same systems that every other human being has ever lived with since complex civilization existed. And it's not different. It may be more complicated, more messy, um, harder for us to see, but it is the same. The authoritarian regime, the veils they throw upon it, the ideological subterfuge, it is, they're all the same tricks that we use today. The authoritarian personalities, the, the way that the rich keep what they have by saying that the poor need them because it will trickle down. All of these tricks are there in the ancient world for us mm. to see. Speak, when you were speaking before about negotiated power, well, you were speaking about Hatshepsut's uh, place within the elites and the, the backroom dealings. It reminded me very strongly of the anthropologist Charles Tilley's theory, which to my mind doesn't get nearly enough recognition, which is that, you know, human states and the structures, the power structures of our societies really mimic in many ways that of organized crime. And <laughs> oh, yeah. when you start digging into the, the structures of these households, you know, they're, ve they're very, very, very mafia-esque to the point that you could use mafia as a parallel study and probably find many fruitful observations. Can you send me that Tilly reference? I would love to read it because yes, absolutely. I use this. Um, I, I'm writing a book right now called Recycling for Death that is about the last mm -hmm. 12 or so years of coffin reuse and Egypt, mm -hmm. uh, Egyptian society in Thebes during the Bronze Age collapse. And mafia studies have been very, very mm -hmm. useful to me. And I read a book that you would really like. I'll send you the reference. I think it's Gambetti. Okay. Um, that's all about how a mafia system works. And mm. it's been extraordinarily useful to apply to the Theban priesthood of Amun in this time period of crisis and mm. where power is coming from, how it's displayed, how it's reified um, economically, physically, or militarily. Um, it's uh, Mafia systems are useful. And then I can see that we look at the tomb robbery papyri of Dynasty 20, and instead mm -hmm. of seeing a pious priesthood stopping these aberrant activities, you see a mafia system in which punishment is being doled out to people who would dare go around the high priesthood mm -hmm. who's already systematically looting those tombs for their own regime. And so they have to go through this big show of putting people on trial when they're the ones doing it themselves. So mm -hmm. everyone is engaged in the same activity and it helps me to see how the poor are punished for those activities while the rich um, go get away with them with impunity. And like in the United States, when, you know, all the poor black people get arrested and put in prison for their whole life for crack cocaine and all the white men who are doing all of the cocaine in powder form, you know, get a light sentence and nothing ever happens to them or mm -hmm. somebody stealing somebody in a shop, something in a shop here and they get put in jail, third strike, you're out, whatever our system does. And somebody can go on the stock market and do the same theft worse to millions of people and nothing will ever happen to them. And it's called- it's Oh, they called, get a bonus. Yeah, it's called capitalism and it's fine. And that's yeah. how we reward the rich. These, this skimming off of the top for, uh, for those at the top of social hierarchies has been happening since civilization, whatever you want to call it, was formed. And it hmm. would behoove us to look at these things more carefully through that lens. Absolutely. When, when people ask me casually, you know, how do I sometimes think about the pharaohs I think, well, probably if you're trying, if you were a, a normal person, 
then the best example you might find today is somewhere like North Korea, where the, the, the visible expression of that power versus what's actually going on behind the scenes is so difficult to penetrate that it's, that's the closest analogy I can think of in the modern world is a state like that. And then yeah, you get into you the right. myths of, you know, yeah. how Kim Jong-un born on the mountainside and the gods were destined him for power. You think, well, yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about. It's funny that you say that because in my, my class on divine kingship that I'm teaching right now to the poor 200 souls who have to watch me over Zoom, I just had a slide in which I have uh, Amenhotep III on one side, or Akhenaten, I can't remember, which it doesn't really matter, and Kim Il-sung on the other. And behind Kim Il-sung's head is this giant disc of the sun. And hmm. it's in Kim Il-sung, he renamed himself to be Kim of the sun. I believe that's it. And so he is the sun king. Louis XIV, he is the sun king. Amenhotep III, he is the dazzling yeah. disc. And, and then Ramses II is the king of kings, and it just keeps going and going. Part 6. Having discussed Hatshepsut's impact on Egyptian royal power, and the nature of that power itself, we now move to our final question. Where is Hatshepsut's mummy? Is the body that is identified as her actually her? And how does a scholar like Professor Cooney approach this sort of question? So, last question about Hatshepsut, which you briefly mentioned earlier, but I wanted to get your professional opinion on it. The quote-unquote mummy of mm. Hatshepsut in the Cairo Museum, identified supposedly from a tooth. What is your professional assessment of this, the study and the uh, likely, or the conclusion of that study? Do you think it is Hatshepsut or do you have doubts? I mean, isn't it funny how we've just been talking about um, people veiling their uh, realpolitik and I feel the same way. <laughs> The Hatshepsut mummy question is really difficult because there's just as much uh, veiling of the actual research process of identifying this mummy as there is in ancient Egypt when you're choosing the next king. So even though all of it was shown apparently in real time on television as Zahi Hawass was making the amazing discovery that the tooth fit the, the space in the head of the mummy or the molar tooth found in the canopic jar that said Hatshepsut fit into the space in the head exactly. I haven't seen that demonstrated in um, an article that I can consume and criticize. So I'm speaking from a lack of evidence. If that tooth really fits, I would love to see it and see how it does and get more information about that tooth. Wouldn't it be nice to do isotopic studies of that tooth and then compare it to the other tooth and see if it matches? Um, that would be interesting. But all in all, I go with uh, mummification experts who know a lot more than I do. And mm -hmm. not being a bioarchaeologist myself, I understand that the brain was not removed in the mummy that was identified as being Hatshepsut's. And that seems mm -hmm. aberrant, what we know of other 18th dynasty royal mummies and 17th dynasty royal mummies, which we have, are preserved to mm -hmm. us. So it seems strange that Hatshepsut, buried in state by the III, he finishes her temples. He treats her with respect. Doesn't go after all of her stuff until a good two decades after. Why would mm. he give her a shoddy burial? I think it's a cheap excuse to say, oh, she took his throne and he hated her and thus he didn't mummify her properly. No. And, and then the other circumstantial evidence that suggests that it is not Hatshepsut is that she's way too old. 
And yes, there's a lot of disagreement about how old Hatshepsut was when she took power. But to take a woman who is um, potentially in her late 60s does not work for the timeline at our disposal. It does not work at all. And um, if she's going to be at her oldest, you know, 45, something like that, and that's to me pushing it. Um, I think she was younger. I err on the younger side for a variety of reasons. Um, I, I just don't think it fits. So, the, and there are other scholars who have gone through this point by point by point, why that body is not hers and why there are other better candidates. And so then I, I'm compelled to ask, why do we care? What does it matter that we have the body of a king? What can you learn from the body of a king? Sometimes you can learn things that are fallacies that, that are repeated again and again, like that Thomas III, the Napoleon of Egypt, was short like Napoleon. And then they realize they didn't measure him properly, and he was really not short. And then everyone has to take that back. Or you come up with ideas that um, Thomas II had a weak heart, and it was an enlarged heart. That's useful information. That's great. Super useful information that Ramses III actually has the cut across his throat because we wouldn't have known uh, definitively that the guy was actually assassinated because they don't tell us that in the texts. So mm. a body can teach you some things. Um, the body of Tutankhamun still hasn't given us a cause of death for a man so young. And mm. it's, it, you know, it's interesting to me that this need to identify a body says as much about us needing to have that physical connection uh, as it does about Hatshepsut. It, you know, so maybe she had cancer and diabetes and I, that's all we can really say. There's not a whole lot else that one could say from examining that body. Um, I would rather ask different research questions and go about this uh, analysis of the ancient world in a different way. Not that I don't use objects. I'm very object centered, very physical in my, um, in my social history. I, I like to surround my social history with with things because people surround themselves with things. But mm. in some ways, I'm like, so it could be her, it might not be her. I don't really care. I really don't. <laughs> I really don't care. And it's not, you know, it's something that people get all upset about and they're going to argue and they should look at this body and that body. Um, might be. Like, so we might have Akhenaten. That's interesting. Might, and now it's been, you know, same deal. It's been definitively defined as Akhenaten's body. It, it's useful for me and that I can tell people that no, he didn't have Marfan syndrome or Furlick syndrome or was a hermaphrodite. That's useful. But um, I, pro I believe that from my own scholarship before that body was identified. So, hmm. but then speaking of questionable studies with cloudy methodologies, that whole page, that whole paper is in and mind minefield in and of itself oh yeah and incidentally it speaks a lot more about the patronage of certain individuals in the modern day than it does about the his, the historical facts that we we can rely on to understand certain people but in the same way that the west drives the consumption of the antique from the antiquities market and thus looting mm. the west mm. has driven this kind of fake tv scholarship in the moment, fake TV scholarship. We're the ones consuming it. We're the ones wild for it. Oh, the body is hers and it's amazing. And look at, there's there's um, the body of Akhenaten and the 18th dynasty bodies and da, 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 da. And so, yeah, there's, um, it, it's just interesting how much money and consumption uh, and commodification 
have driven all of these things. Um, this mm -hmm. is why I will not do made for TV research. I will do made for TV musing. I love doing that. I love using the medium of television to think about things and connect to stuff that I wouldn't be able to do in an academic paper because academics can be real jerks. And so <laughs> it's easier to do on TV and to come up with big ideas in that or in a trade book that can be very fun. But, um, but this kind of research, it needs to be done in a completely different way. That brings us to the end of the conversation about King Hut Shepsut. After the music, we move into a discussion about the science of Egyptology and its representation in media and public discourse. Karakuni is active in both the academic and the public communities, and she offers insight into the way that Egyptological science can sometimes be misrepresented or even distorted depending on the medium in which it appears. Easily the most lively and hard-hitting part of the conversation so far, this next chapter is truly a wonderful insight from one of the foremost scholars working in the public arena. Part 7. The Science of Egyptology and Professor Cooney's Career so moving now to your career as an Egyptologist, I'm curious, what first drew you to study ancient Egypt? And then what made you decide that this was a career you wanted to pursue? Um, I was so naive. I had no idea. I just, I followed my heart on this one. And the <laughs> real answer to your question is I, I was allowed to follow my heart because I grew up with the entitlements that let me do that. And I also believe, and you can counter me on this being of a different gender than me, but being of the female gender in my upper middle class Texas society allowed people to pat me on the head and say, okay, sweetheart, you, you do that crazy thing that you want to do. And, and I don't think even though my brother would have made a great academic, I don't think he felt socially allowed to do that. And he is now a lawyer and assistant attorney general for the state of New York and dealing with all kinds of stuff during COVID-19. Um, so yeah. in some ways it's because I was entitled and enabled and privileged enough to do so. Now getting yeah. to the more emotional question of why Egypt, I have no, I have no real answer to this and I do not understand it myself. And isn't it strange that I see the world around me better through the lens of antiquity, that I can't figure out my own authoritarian personalities, you know, who are ruling my government, or I can't figure out the economy, or I can't figure out how the academic system works. But then once I start studying something similar in the ancient world, I'm like, oh, that's how it works here. And then I get it. <laughs> I don't know why that is. I don't know why I need that connection, that back and forth. Maybe it it simplifies it. It takes out all of the storyline. It, it reduces it to the, the the human things that are similar from place to place and time to time. But mm. the Egyptian connection for me, you know, it's funny. I don't think I really saw ancient Egypt as an authoritarian power until a, a good decade into my own study of that place. I was drawn to the beauty like anybody else, seduced by what kings were able to produce 
in love with Amenhotep III and all of his beautiful stuff. And look at him and look at that statue on the sledge and looks our museum. He's gorgeous with no critical eye. And now I, I see it in a different way. So it's almost like Egypt for me was like the hot guy. <laughs> and I chased <laughs> after him and he is so cute. And I loved him. We got married. And then that hot guy started to reveal what he was actually made of. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And now I'm in analysis, like talking about the hot guy and why I was seduced by him and why I thought he was so cool. And I still think he's cool and he's still really cute, but I'm, I don't know, it's something going on. And um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. My, um, my, my per personal relationship with this, this ancient place in Northeast Africa from thousands of years ago. <laughs> I'm sure we should put an asterisk that we are in no way referring to relationships past or present. <laughs> No, I, I will also say that I just found out that I have a little bit of Egyptian DNA, uh, which hmm. is awesome. My mother did her DNA test and it shows that she's 20% Middle Eastern. And hmm. that makes me 10% Middle Eastern. And a, a big chunk of that Middle Eastern is North African and Coptic Egyptian. So not a lot, but there's something. So now on a personal level, what is to date your favorite experience or memory from field excavation or museum work? Oh, that's so hard. I yeah. think ooh, um, the work that I've been doing in the Cairo Museum on the Royal Cache has been very interesting, really fun. But I, I feel a little bit like I'm, I'm lost and alone in the dark. Um, because I, these coffins are not 19th, 20th, and 21st dynasty coffins, so I don't feel like I know them like old friends. They're not of my dissertational past. I don't have that, that memory of, of them. And I'm looking at 17th and 18th dynasty objects, and they're all reworked. They're all modified. But there were kings buried inside them. They have heretic labels on them. You know, we got to take Ramses II's coffin out of the case and photograph that beautiful cedar piece inside and out. And... The privilege that you feel looking at these pieces, you know, climbing up on the ladder next to the giant coffin of Ahmos Nefertari, or should we say sarcophagus? Um, it's uh, oh, let's call it a giant coffin. It's it's pretty awe-inspiring, and when you feel that awe, you realize that all of this is manufactured to make you feel that awe, and that these coffins that I'm looking at are just a mere remnant of what the kings would have been buried in looking at what we have from Tutankhamun's burial. So um, th that moment when the coffin comes out of the case and you've been staring through the case and you can't see everything and then they open it up, um, it's a wonderful moment. And it was one time, it was a 21st dynasty coffin. I think it, would, it, it was Isidem Heb. And they open the coffin and you know how there's the mummy rooms in the Cairo Museum. And of course they're moving all of those to Nemec, to the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization. Um, not all of the mummies have been moved and they opened up one of these coffins and there inside was a 21st dynasty body, female, with the false mm. hair, with open eyes. And every, we, we opened it up and everyone just went, whoa, because she mm. was looking at us. And it was, it was insane um, to be able to see that, uh, that coffin being used for what it was meant 
And to see that uh, that body that had not been removed and to see it revealed with the opening of the lid, that was that was pretty crazy. And that 21st dynasty style of mummification, it goes along with what we were talking about before with those trends of, of funerary behavior. Because once everybody started to steal or, or reuse legally these coffins and people were defensively deciding where to put their commodities for their display, people started to trick out their mummies in a way that they had not before. And hmm. have their, this is the apex of mummification in the 21st dynasty, which is also the apex of coffin reuse. These two things do not occur um, without meaning or reason. And that, that coffin was produced with time-consuming labor, time con expensive commodities, and, um, and yet you can't steal any of it. Nobody in the ancient world is going to be able to get anything out of that mummy. So it was a way for a very closed society of Theban priests to display their wealth and abilities to other Theban priests in a very safe, sacred place like an embalming workshop, then wrap it all up. And, and then when somebody's going through the tomb, maybe their own nephew, their own grandchild, they're not going to want to take that coffin or sorry, that body mm -hmm. while they take the coffin because the mummy has no use to the people of the ancient world though we certainly commodify them today. And finally, this is this is a question I ask of everyone who comes on the show and it sort of gives a sense of um, interests and personality, is if you could answer one question or resolve one issue definitively from ancient Egypt, what would you choose to know and why? Well, I have to go to Akhenaten's Egypt. I mean, you would too, I, I sense. It, we have to. Um, I, I would, I would want to be there, uh, if I'm going to get in my time machine and ask a question or if they're coming to me, um, if they're coming to me, then I would ask Nefertiti what she agreed with and didn't agree with during her husband, Akhenaten's regime. How much of a, of a helpful hand was she as he was instituting all of these changes and compelling such um, sweeping and radical social change. And then mm -hmm. I would want to know what she did about it when she became co-king or, and if she was sole king, then wh what, how did she attack that problem? Um, I suppose, you know, if I have them both together, <laughs> then I will <laughs> try to suss out why Akhenaten did what he did. But I'm sure it'll, you know, even if I were in his presence, I bet it would be just as confusing as it is when you're in any leader's presence like that. So say we go talk to Kim Jong-un and we get to sit him down and or we get to go there and be there and see what it's like. I still don't think we're going to be able to figure out why he continues to run this regime this way, except for the basic human behaviors of keeping power and maintaining power and raised to be a narcissist, continue to be a narcissist. You could say the same thing about the president of my country today and the people who follow him. Um, so I, I think I'm more interested in Nefertiti's story there. There's so many unknowns. There's so It's so hard to find where she starts and where she stops and where she becomes something else. So mm -hmm. I, I want to I see what, I, I want to hear what she has to say about that experience. That's great. Okay, so Professor Cooney, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with the History of Egypt podcast. I know you have a busy schedule and um, been trying to get you on for a couple of years. So thank you very much for 
being able to join us. Uh, I hope you'll consider coming back on again in the future, particularly when the podcast reaches the later New Kingdom to discuss your work on social history and archaeologies of those times. Oh, I'd love to come back. This was super fun. And I'm sorry that I'm so hard to get a hold of. I know I am. It's a good problem to have. But uh, before we go, are you able to give my listeners an indication of your current research or what you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I have two projects going on right now. One is a book about Egyptian authoritarian kingship. No surprise there, (laughs) what I'm talking about, called The Good Kings. Um, I think it's going to be called The Good Kings Pulling the Veil from Egyptian Authoritarianism. And that's going to be a National Geographic trade book, Um, Mm -hmm. like, you know, with the same um, look and feel of the others, uh, connecting past and present political uh, connections as well. And then the other Mm -hmm. book that I'm working on is called Recycling for Death. And it's about coffin reuse and trying to just get as much data out there in one or two volumes as I possibly can. And then, you know, future stuff, um, I, I've, I've always got uh, something in the, <laughs> in the works. Um, and the, the most important thing, and the, the thing that you might be interested in as well, is an edited volume that I'm doing with two of my graduate students, both of whom are getting their PhDs in the coming months, and uh, Nadia Ben-Marzouk and Danielle Candelora. And we are calling that book, I think it's... Um, uh, rewriting Egyptian social history, questioning assumptions, something or other. And that'll be with Rutledge. And I'm writing an article on that right now, trying to find the time, on um, um, new materialism, if you know about new materialism, or geographic uh, shaping of a culture. And I'm trying to understand ancient Egypt and Egyptian society through this geographic slash economic slash material lens. And it's been very fun. And then my colleagues, um, Daniel Candelora and Nadia, they're working on other aspects as well. Danielle is doing identity. Um, She focuses on the Hyksos. And Nadia is looking at situated learning communities of practice. And and then we have um, articles that we've invited and we have... um, Nadine Muller, Dimitri Labori, mm-hmm. John Baines. Um, mm-hmm. Who else did we get for this? Thomas Schneider is going to write a, re- um, a response to all of our articles. And, um, and, and there's just a lot of fun social history discussions in this book. So that's mm-hmm. hopefully going to be out by the end of 2020, she said confidently, or maybe mm-hmm. um, the beginning of 2021. Let's see. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Academia moves at its own pace, particularly with publishing. Fingers crossed. But yes, that sounds fascinating. And I look forward to reading all of those. So thank you very much. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Good luck with everything. My thanks to Professor Cooney for taking the time from her busy schedule to talk with us. Follow the links in the episode description to learn more about Cara Cooney's work and to find some of her published materials. For now, I'll see you on the next episode. May the R10 bless you and give you a great week.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.